Good morning. My name is Rich Benson, and I'd like to introduce my lovely wife, Donna, back there in the corner, and my mom, right up here. And uh, we've been longtime members of uh, Timberline Baptist Church here. And uh, here a while back, we've been attending a, a Tuesday night called The Vine Project, and it's just been a wonderful experience. Uh, being with a bunch of young uh, young men who are rooted in the Bible, but just have that burning desire to dig even deeper into the Bible and Scripture and bring it into their family life and into the world. Um, I was born into the Calvary Baptist Church, our sister church up in Tacoma. And I say that because my grandparents in 1919 got married there. And a couple of years later, they had daughters and those daughters started uh, raising their children in church. And, uh, and so with that, I'd just like to say Proverbs 22, verse 6. Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. So I'd like to say that you know, raising your children from the get-go is very, very important. This is a proverb. There's a lot in Scripture about raising your children, and you need to pay attention to that, especially in this day and age of trying times. Uh, the first 10 years here at Calvary Baptist, the first 10 years of my life were enjoyable. My favorite verse is John 3.16, Forever believeth and me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Very simple, very to the point. No exceptions, no nothing. It's very true. And, uh, and the other thing was that if you dozed off during the sermon, the usher would come over and shake you. <laughs> As a little boy, I always got a kick out of that. But, uh, and then at 10 years old, we moved down south to Centralia, Washington, and we started attending Baptist Church there and started getting involved in, you know, Sunday school and youth activities. Back in those days, they had church, church had youth leagues down there, and so we had church basketball youth leagues. Really enjoyed that. Accepted Christ as my Savior at 13 years of age. Things were moving along pretty good. And then one day, the church just kind of fell apart, attendance-wise. And I didn't realize it at the time, because I was kind of young, maybe in my early teens, um, that it wasn't so much about the gospel and Jesus and our Savior, but it was about who was running the church. And when people said, well, if I don't get my way, I'm leaving, and other people would say, well, if I don't get my way, I'm going to leave, and everybody left except for a very small group. And at the time, yeah, it was a little hurtful, um, but not being young, really not getting too deep into, into the whys or what was really going on. Um, and then so a new pastor came in and rebuilt the church. A few years went by and got into young adulthood and started going to weeknight Bible classes, and the church was growing, and things were really going well. And then one day, out of nowhere, he says, I'm going to go accept a pastoral ship in California. And away he went. Kind of strange. And then, and then uh, you know, a couple months later, the church secretary takes off to California. So you let your imagination go with that. Um, the church kind of fell apart again. Now, as a young adult and, and really getting into, into Bible studies and whatever, that was really hurtful. Really hurtful to me personally in my relationship. Not with Jesus, you know, not with the Father, but with, with, uh, with, with church. After a while, we moved to uh, Central, or Shelton, and a small town. And uh, if you don't know what you're doing, there's somebody around close by that will tell you what you've been doing. And, uh, and through business relationships, I got to know somebody, not real personal, but I knew what his activities were during the week and in the evenings and all that good stuff. And decided to seek out a Baptist church down there. And so I go there, and, and sure enough, this individual sitting up on the stage as a deacon. And I told myself, you know, I'm not going to go there. I've, I've seen churches self-destruct 
And uh, I'm not, I don't want to put myself through that. I told myself I love Jesus, but I'm done with churches. And that was a very, very bad mistake on my part to start uh, living a life without, without a church family. Uh, that went over about a period of 20 years. And uh, you're making life decisions from a, a secular point of view. Uh, you live life with conditions on love. You live life with conditions on forgiveness. And, uh, and Christ is just not the center of your relationship. And so what you're finding out over a period of time, you don't really have joy. You don't really have peace. There's always a little bit of conflict with what's going on in your life. Uh, let it be at work. Let it be at home with the relationships. Uh, um, let it be with your neighbors. And um, things just weren't well. Things weren't well. Then, and that was, that was about 1970. I'm giving away my age here. Um, at the late 80s, Mom, who had been attending church here for a little while, and Donna, we had moved up here, over here, just down the road a piece, and uh, started encouraging me, maybe pestering me, to start coming to church, okay? So I, we started attending church here, and the, I, I don't know, it, there was a change I made a commitment that I'll start attending church here, but I'm not going to get involved in anything. I'm going to come, listen to a sermon, and go home. The sermons um, kind of beat me up. They revealed, the sermons made, uh, kind of revealed in me all my shortcomings. Everything that I've been doing that I probably shouldn't be doing that because I wasn't involved in Christ in, in my life. And after that first one, I don't know, something compelled me. You know, Benson, you got to go back here, the, you know, next Sunday and, and get beat up a little bit more. It's kind of the way I was looking at it. And because uh, I was just emotionally and, and you know, getting, getting cleaned out there. And so that went on for quite some time. But during that time, we started building uh, personal relationships with the church family here. And one thing kind of led to the other. Uh, Donna and I rededicated ourselves to Christ, and we became members. And over time, we started getting active in activities. Um, I took a survey once, uh, your, your gift surveys, and it said I'd make a good teacher. Well, I thought that's the last thing I'd ever do, but I was teaching Sunday school. And uh, Donna and I, we... we Worked with uh, Children's Church for quite a few years and uh, worked with nursery for quite a few years. And Donna really got involved with VBS for quite a few years. And, uh, and just throughout, I just, you know, the Lord, the Spirit was just moving me in. And when there was a little, little hiccup, when something didn't go right, something that could be upsetting, I didn't find myself saying, I want to run from this church. I find myself, I want to get a little bit deeper and make this church even better. And uh, so, over time, I guess it was about, I don't know, 2,000 stepped up and got on the elder board. And the good, a lot of good, a lot of good times, uh, a lot of challenging times. Uh, we're not perfect. We're a lot of sinners. We do a lot of dumb things, and and sometimes trying to keep that all pulled together into one nice, tight family that's peaceful and loving could be challenging sometimes. But it all worked out. It all worked out, and. Uh, there was one time I, I took a year off in, in, that, in that period and, and came back and with an intention of, of uh, my personal focus, and, and I tried to relay that to the rest of the elder team that we need joy. You know, we need to bring some happiness, some joy into the church. Not that it was non-existence, but we just need more. 
And uh, so every elder board meeting, I would come with some scripture out of the Bible, you know, that referenced joy. And, and that helped. Uh, that gave me new energy. And uh, we started going. And, and I got to say, the, the best time or the, the best moment, um, I guess in my service on the elder board here is a couple years ago when the, when the church pastoral search team says you got to look at this person. So we reviewed a packet, and then we did a Skype or phone interview or something, and then we invited them out here. And, and of course, the elder team, we just prayed our little hearts out, you know, that they would accept an invite to come out. And, and sure enough, they did, and we had a good interview. And, and then we prayed our hearts out that they would accept you know, our invitation to come out, and, and they did, and, and we got Nick and Stephanie, and uh, uh, just, just beautiful, and so in, in uh, I guess you might say in the last 30 years, having a relationship with, with Timberline Baptist Church, having a relationship with Jesus Christ, having a relationship with the family here, I can't stress that, I mean, the family this is the bride of Christ right here, and everything happens through through this church uh, when it comes to comes to Jesus and doing His work. And I got to say, it's just been been most rewarding. It's given us a strength. Not too many people know, but we raised a grandson from four years old to sixteen years old. When when we're tired and we're kind of getting up there a little bit, but it gave us energy to. To persevere through all that, and, and, and in a loving way, and then just here in a couple years ago, we uh, we went through an effort of uh, of taking our granddaughter from from a baby to about you know I don't know three years old something like that, but working with courts and driving all over Western Washington and Oregon, trying to get her place, in which we finally did in a good loving home. And, uh, and we did all that with, with love and peace in our hearts. And, and we planted a seed in each and every one of them of, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and whenever we get a chance, we try to water that and grow that. Okay. So uh, in closing, I'd just like to say, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good scripture and there's a lot of good memory verses that each one of us has that takes us through life. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm just looking at First Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Can't stress that anymore, but pray continually. And give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances. There are going to be good ones and there are going to be bad ones, but you, uh, you know, give thanks for all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. If you don't know Rich, you should, uh, you should get to know him more. He loves Jesus, and he has a great joy about him. And his service, uh, not only at the church, but with his family, is an amazing example um, for us all to follow. So thank you, Rich, just for sharing some of your life and your story here with us. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians, so go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. This is uh, our family Sunday, last Sunday of the month. Um, everyone stays in the room together, and then we will do communion together so that our children get to watch that with us. And um, if it's okay with you parents, then they participate, but we leave that up to you. Uh, so we're going to... We're going to dig in. Um, we've begun in Galatians a couple weeks ago, and we've titled the series, The Gospel of Grace. And uh, my question today is, is how powerful is the gospel of grace? Does it really have the power to save? Uh, can grace really save us? Can it really transform us? Can it make us more like Jesus? Or, or, or should we be looking at alternatives? Should we be looking at a gospel of works? And in Galatians, especially in chapters 1 and 2, Paul is defending his apostleship. The Judaizers, those who advocate for gospel of works, have come and they're denying that Paul is a true apostle. 
They know that if they can tarnish his credentials, then his gospel will come crumbling down. And so in our text today, Paul is going to be defending his apostleship by looking at the gospel of grace. And so we're going to read Galatians 1, 10 through 24, and we're not going to do questions like we do normally, so if you have questions, we're not going to text those in today. Um, Andrew's going to actually be writing down questions as we go through, and then he's going to come up at the end, and we're just going to do a couple application questions, uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to stand. We stand here at the reading of God's word. We do so because we believe God's word comes with his full authority. And so we do so to honor him and our love and respect for our heavenly father. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you for your word today, and I pray that as we open your word and as we look at Galatians, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to see the power of the gospel of grace, that we would see that it is a, not a gospel centered on man, but it is centered upon your son, Jesus Christ, for your glory. And God, may we see the power of your grace, how it comes and it transforms lives for your glory. God, encourage us today. Convict us today. God, may we delight in your gospel of grace as we read about it today. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may have a seat. Now, when reading a letter, it's kind of like listening to a one-sided Are we there? Hey! So we'll, we'll see if this works now. If it stops again, then we'll see. All right. Everybody ready? Okay. So when reading a letter, it's kind of like listening to a one-sided phone conversation. You don't hear what the other person is saying. You only hear what the person is saying next to you. 
But if you listen carefully, you can usually pick up the full conversation based upon the argument, based upon what the person is saying. You can anticipate what the other person is saying. And that's the same thing when we're reading a letter. We don't know what Paul has necessarily heard. But based upon what he is writing, we can understand why he is arguing the way he does. And here in verse 10, he says, Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? So why does Paul say this? Well, the Judaizers, if you remember, they're trying to deny Paul's apostleship. They're saying that he's not truly an apostle, that his gospel is fake. And most likely what they're saying is his gospel of grace, that's too easy. That's man-centered. No one is saved by grace alone. Here Paul has, has watered down the gospel. He's dumbed it down to say, all you have to do is believe. And so the Judaizers are railing on him about that and saying, that's not possible. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Mosaic law. You need to do all of these other things. Paul has dumbed down the gospel because he's only interested in numbers. He wants as many people to believe as possible, so he's made it very, very easy. So that's probably something like the argument that they are making. The Judaizers are mocking that anyone could be saved by grace. They say it has to be by works. And what we understand, though, is that the Judaizers think that man is basically good. And this is what happens with all works-based gospels. See, a works-based gospel, like what the Judaizers is arguing for, is they don't necessarily deny that man is sinful, but they don't see sin as something that fully corrupts the person. They don't see it as something that causes them to rebel against God and to uh, seek their own glory apart from God. They look at it as more of a weight that weighs us down, something that hinders us, Kind of maybe like a sickness, you get sick, my daughter's a little sick today, she's not her full potential, so sin is something that just kind of weighs us down, but with enough effort, we can overcome it. And this is where all religions get it wrong, because they all focus on works. Christianity is the only religion that emphasizes grace. But all other religions emphasize a works-based religion or a works-based salvation. And what it means is they have a distorted view of grace because they have an elevated view of self. The reason they don't like grace is because they're not really broken, at least according to their own eyes. They don't think that they're that sick. They don't think that they're really rebelling against God. They look at themselves and they say, we're really not that bad. We can do a lot of good. We can earn our way to heaven. Well, what we understand is when we look at Scripture, is that Scripture from God's Word, His inspired Word, tells us that man is sinful. And everything that we do is full of sin. Every action, every thought, every part of our lives is full of sin because that is how we're born. We are born into sin. And when we understand this, what we understand is that there is no way, if everything we do is sinful, that then we can possibly earn our way back to heaven. And so when the Judaizers say the gospel of grace is man-pleasing, it's actually not. The gospel of grace is anything about man-centered because the gospel of grace says you're guilty. The gospel of grace says we're, as humanity, we're hopeless. We don't have a chance. The gospel of grace is not good news until it is first bad news to us. It's actually a gospel of works that is man-centered. So here the Judaizers are saying, Paul's giving you a man-centered gospel, but he's not. By emphasizing grace, it's a God-centered gospel because he's saying the only way you can be saved is by grace. But a works-based gospel is man-centered because it looks at you and says, you know what? You're really not that bad. You really can do good. You're not that far away from salvation. Here, if only you get circumcised, if only you keep the Mosaic law, if only you do these very things, then you too can be saved. Grace says you're guilty where work says you can do it. And so Paul then, at the end of verse 10, he says a very bold thing. If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant to Christ. 
So here Paul, at the end of verse 10, he says, serving Christ and pleasing man are two antithetical options here. Like they don't go together. If you're going to please man, then you cannot please God at the same time. And what he means is that your ultimate goal cannot be to please God and to please man simultaneously. And so now Paul is going to give three reasons from verses 11 through 24 on why his gospel is not man-centered, but why it is truly God-centered. And so he's going to walk us through how we received the gospel, how he was saved, and also the effect of his gospel. And so the first thing we're going to see is that the gospel of grace comes from Jesus. If you look at verse 11, Paul lets everyone know that the gospel he preached was not man's gospel. He says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me is not man's gospel. Verse 12, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. So he's saying the origin of my gospel did not come from any man. So where did it come from? Well, in verse 12, if we keep reading, he says, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you remember in Acts 9, we looked at that two weeks ago. In Acts 9, Paul is on his horse. He's on his way to Damascus. He's going to arrest Christians. He's going to kill Christians. And it's at that time, Jesus blinds him, knocks him off his horse, and he becomes saved. And Paul receives the gospel from the risen Jesus Christ. He didn't go off into the woods have a mystical experience. He didn't bring in gold plates with some type of hieroglyphics on them and translate them from anyone. He brings in a gospel that comes directly from Jesus Christ. <coughs> and it makes sense, right? I mean, if we were to create a gospel, we wouldn't create a gospel of grace. We would make a gospel that we would be the hero of, right? Or at least we would have some type of glory in it. I mean, the gospel of grace says all of humanity is guilty. Only Jesus Christ saves. But if we were to make a gospel, surely we would have some say in it. Surely we would have some part in it. Surely it would, we would at least share in the glory of our salvation. Why? Because that's who we are because of sin. Because of sin, we are naturally bent towards ourselves. We are naturally bent towards desiring our own glory. But here Paul says, the gospel that I have comes from Christ. And that's why it's all about God's glory, not about our glory. And that is the essence of all false religions. All false religions, because their works-based, seek the glory of man. Whatever religion you look at, ultimately, they're there to exalt the man. For the man reaching some type of enlightened state, for the man becoming a god himself, for the man becoming the god of his own world, whatever religion you look at other than Christianity, it exalts the man because it's focused on the glory of the man. Only Christianity focuses on the glory of God. And we see this. I mean, we, we want our own glory, right? I mean, if you look at, if you look at lives, it's the reason that we cheat, the reason that we lie, the reason that we steal, the reason that we fight is because we want our glory. It's the reason if you look at Facebook or Instagram or any of those social medias, uh, they all look picture perfect. They all have their nice pictures on them, their sayings on them. We don't really come across our confessions of sins on Facebook, do we? We don't do that. Now, some would not argue, well, that's just not the place. Well, well, true, I could argue that too. But in reality, we don't want people to see our brokenness. That's why it's hard for us to open up to one another. That's why it's hard for us to want to uh, confess our sins to one another. We don't want people to see our brokenness, to see how corrupt we are, to see that we're not as picture perfect as we let, out, uh, let on to be. We don't want to compromise our glory. We love our glory. We want people to see our glory. And this is the appeal of the works-based gospels. They focus on the very glory of man, which in our sinful state, that's exactly what we want. That's why many of them can become so popular so quickly. And this is why Paul begins, 
my gospel does not come from man, it comes from Jesus. That's his first reason. It's not about pleasing man because it comes from Jesus. The second reason he's going to say is the gospel of grace transforms. In verses 13 through 16, Paul gives his personal testimony. He's going to remind the Galatians who he was. Notice how he starts. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. So right there he's saying, you've heard it, you know it, you can go check on this. My past is no secret. Everyone knows how I used to live. And so he describes who he was before he came to know Christ. He says, I persecuted the church of God violently. He said, I wanted to destroy the church. He was excelling in following the law. He was zealous for the law. That's what it means when he says the tradition, zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Before Paul was saved, he was all about the law, about keeping the law, about proving how good he was. Paul was an exemplary Pharisee. And in verse 14, we see that he was advancing beyond everyone else. Like if you open up the dictionary to Pharisee back then in the first century, you'd have Paul's face there. He was the one that everyone wanted to be. In class, he was the one the teacher's pet. Everyone knew, well, Paul's perfect. Paul's the one who does it right. He brings the apple to the teacher, sets it on the desk. Everyone always looks at Paul and says, man, that guy he is so good. He keeps every point of the law. He's better than all of us combined. Paul's reminding us and the Galatians that he is as far away from grace as he possibly could be. He is the one that nobody would think would be saved. You ever, you ever know those people? Like you meet them and you're just, wow, that guy, the way he thinks, the way he does things, like, how could that person ever be saved? Paul is that person. That's what he's highlighting here. He's saying, I was so wicked. I was so far from grace. I was 180 degrees, the opposite direction. And if it was up to Paul to earn his salvation, he's saying, I would have absolutely no hope because he didn't want it. He was advancing in Judaism. He was the best of the best. Everyone wanted to be him. He was so zealous that he was going to persecute the other faith religions like Christianity. He had no hope of being saved if it was up to his own works. And the same goes for you and for me. If it's up to you and to I to save ourselves, we have no hope. Popularity, respect, money, success... None of those are able to save. In fact, if you trust in those things, it's like trusting in a lead-weighted life preserver. You can put it on, but when you put it on and jump in the water, you're simply going to sink. It doesn't matter how zealous you are about it. It doesn't matter if you sincerely believe this lead-weighted life preserver is going to float. You'll be sincerely wrong, and you will sink. Let me ask you this. How would you answer the question, why will God let you in his heaven? Why? Why will he let you in? And perhaps at this moment you might start saying, well, I go to church. Maybe you say, well, I read my Bible. Maybe you say, I'm nice to others. I volunteer here. I give my money here. I do this. But if those are the first things on your mind, then none of those things will save you. Not one of them not that they're wrong not that they're bad but none of them have the power to save the only reason you can give on that day when you stand before god and he will let you into his heaven is if you have had faith in jesus christ the only reason is jesus christ there is no other reason you can read this bible cover to cover the pharisees had the old testament memorized can you imagine that can you imagine that like having the Old Testament memorized, where they knew it so well, and yet they were so far from heaven. Jesus alone is the grace of God that saves us from our sins, because he alone has come from heaven to die on a cross that we who believe in him could be forgiven and adopted into his family. If we give any other reason, 
It doesn't have the power to save. A man-centered gospel, a works-based gospel, simply does not have the power to save. This is why Paul's giving his testimony. He wants us to see the power of grace and the foolishness of works. He's saying, I was as far away from grace as you could possibly imagine. I was running in the opposite direction. And then we come to verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. That's what changed Paul. Nothing to do about his works. Look at that. He was set apart. The Greek word is aphorizo. You can try to use that at, at lunch today. I don't know if you'll be successful. Um, but God sets him apart, meaning he, he separated him. He marked him. Now, when was he separated? Before I was born. So before Paul is born, he's been separated. If we go back to Ephesians 1, we would learn that it's before creation. Paul has been separated, chosen so that one day God's grace would come upon him and save him. And it's because he's been set apart, God calls him by his grace. And it's because he calls him by his grace. Notice verse 16. Was pleased to reveal his son to him. Notice two things there. God's pleased. What's God pleased in doing? Revealing his son to Paul. God delights in showing his grace. You see that? God delights in showing his grace. Because grace glorifies him. Because grace is what saves the sinner. And so the way Paul is called by God's grace is when God revealed his son to him so that he would be saved. Every part of Paul's story drips with grace. I mean, think about it. What's Paul doing? He's running away from God. He's literally, he has papers with him to persecute Christians, to arrest them, to kill them. I mean, he's as far away from grace as you could possibly imagine. He's not knocking on heaven's doors. He's not close to Jesus Christ. He hates Jesus. He has no chance of saving himself if he's supposed to earn it by himself. But it's grace that saves Paul because it's grace that knocks him off his horse. Amen. Amen. Works is what's spurring him on. It's works that's spurring him to Damascus. It's works that's causing him to say, look, I'm going to arrest these Christians. I'm going to prove how zealous I am. I'm going to show everyone how dedicated I am to the Jewish law I will have all these people arrested. People will look at me and know when they see me, I am a devout Jew. It's works that spur him on away from God. It's grace that knocks him off, that saves him, and that changes him. Look at what Paul says. Go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. We'll be here in, in a couple weeks. He says, for through the law, I died to law so that I might live to God. Through the law, he dies to the law so that he might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 180 degree change here. Paul's on a horse, ready to kill Christians. Grace comes upon him, and now he says, the life I live is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A gospel of works does not have the power to transform because it doesn't say you need to be transformed. A gospel of works has no need to transform you because a gospel of works comes alongside you and says, you can do it. It etches the Nike symbol into your skin and says, just do it. You can go for it. But the problem is you, you can't. I can't. And that's the power of grace. And notice in verse 16, here in chapter 1, or actually um, at the end, yeah, verse 16, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, Jews and Gentiles were bitter enemies. 
For thousands of years, Jews hate Gentiles. They hate the Gentiles. They, they actually, around the temple, they would have an outer court, and they would have a sign on it that's, that would say that if any Gentile comes into this court, it is their own fault for their death that they will surely come upon them. So they're saying, you will die if you're a Gentile and you come in here. They keep Gentiles away from the temple of God. And now Paul, because he now has been saved by grace, he sees Jesus. He's been given a new heart, a new affections, that now he loves Gentiles. And he wants to preach the gospel, the very thing he hated, to the very people he hated. Paul has been completely and absolutely transformed. You see, that's what happens, is when you receive the gospel, you're made new. What we used to think was ugly, what we used to detest, namely the gospel, namely Jesus, now we find beautiful, now we love, now we desire to share. Now, while the circumstances may be different for you and me, it's the same gospel that saved you and me that saved Paul. You were not saved because of where you're born. You're not saved because of how intelligent you are. You're not saved because of any good works you have done or any good works that you will ever do in the future. You're saved by grace. Solely by the grace of God. And it's that grace that gives you a new heart. So that now you desire God. So that now you desire to read about God. So now you desire to gather with God's people. So now as Rich comes and he shares his testimony and how he's been involved in the church, that's God's grace upon him. It's God's grace that right now we, we desire to hear the word and be changed by the word. It's God's grace that changes us and changes our goals that we have. So as we become Christians, no longer is it about how big do I make my 401k, but now how do I give money away? It's about how do I serve now? It's about how do I be involved in the body of Christ? How do I share this gospel more and more? Only the gospel of grace turns us inside out. So that's, just, that's the second reason. Is that the reason my, my gospel is not man-centered, the reason I'm not trying to please man is because it comes from God and it changes us so that every single part of us would be about God's glory. And that's the last point. The gospel of grace glorifies Paul. If you look at verse 18, we're told that three years after Paul's conversion, he finally goes and he meets Cephas, which that's Peter. And then he meets James, who's also one of the apostles in Jerusalem. And he's only there for 15 days. So it's kind of a whirlwind tour. He comes in, sees these two guys. He takes off. He then goes to Syria and Cilicia. Verse, 20, or verse 22 Paul says he's still not known in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So why does he tell us this? Why is it important that he says, after three years, I finally made it to Jerusalem. I only swung in, and then I, I left really fast. And nobody really knows me there. I only saw two of the apostles. Why is that important? Well, most likely the Judaizers are saying, look, Paul, he's a, he's a disciple of the Jerusalem apostles. He's learned from them. He studied under them. And now he's perverting their gospel. So they have somehow connected Paul to the apostles, but they're saying he now distorts the gospel. Maybe it's because he wants to, to create his own following. Maybe it's because he wants to create a new cult, a sect. Maybe it's because he wants to see how many people will come after him. Regardless, they're saying, look, he's been influenced by the other apostles, but he's changed now. And what Paul is saying is, no, that's not the case at all. In fact, he's saying, I've barely had any contact with the apostles at all. And what we're going to see in chapter 2, if you go down to verse 9 in chapter 2, Paul says that, that we're the same. We have the same gospel. Verse 9 says, and when James and Cephas and John, those are all apostles, he says, who seem to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. What Paul is saying is that, these apostles recognize that, that I, Paul, we have the same gospel. They're going to the Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles. We have fellowship with one another. And we'll see that more in the next couple of weeks. But Paul is saying, look, my gospel is the true gospel. And evidence of that is in verse 24, where what we see is that those who hear about the transformation in Paul, they glorify God. They're not following Paul. 
Paul's not creating a following after him. Paul's not seeing how many uh, uh, Facebook followers or Twitter followers or Instagram followers or whatever else he can get. He's seeing God be glorified because of the gospel. There's many false gospels in the world today, but only the gospel of grace is the one that saves. If we learn anything in Galatians, one of the things is we learn is that you and I, we're going to be bombarded by false gospels. Here, Paul, he plants this church in the first century, and, and the church that he plants is bombarded by a false gospel. We see it more and more today. There are so many false gospels out there. I wish that I could say, look, you go to any church here in Olympia and you'll be fine. I wish I could say any person who opens up the Bible on the radio or on TV, listen to and you'll be fine. But that's not true. Prosperity gospel is very abundant. There's many other gospels that twist and pervert the truth of God's word. And we're seeing that more and more and more. We're seeing that uh, on TV and sitcoms, giving a false gospel, saying, if you pursue this, you will be happy. If you pursue this, you will be happy. In, in schools today, our kids are being told they can define their own reality. They're saying, if you want to be a boy, you can be a boy. If you want to be a girl, you can be a girl. You define your own reality. Whatever makes you happy, you define that now. That's the news that they're being told in school and that's what we're seeing all throughout the world right now is whatever you want to do, you pursue, and what's right for you is right for you. And so what we have to realize is that our gospel is under attack today very much. There's many, many false gospels. And if you're a parent here, no, your children, as born in this world, they're predisposed to following those false gospels. They're predisposed to every single one of those false gospels because they appeal to the glory of man and not to the glory of God. So if you're a parent here, one of the greatest things you can do is know this gospel and teach this gospel to your children. Don't rely upon once a week. Don't rely upon our children's teachers or once a month when they're in here for them to hear the gospel. It's great for them to hear it here. But the gospel is like water. We need it every single day to survive and to nourish us. And we need to be in this gospel every single day. If you're a child here, if you're a student, know that the world around you is presenting false gospels at all times. And that this gospel, the one that we come to in the Bible, is the only good news. It's the only hope that is offered. And so while your friends and while many other people will say, no, believe this, believe this, or they'll say it's dumb that you go to church, or it's dumb that you go hang out on church on Tuesday nights and talk about the Bible, or that you go on Sunday mornings, or that you believe in some guy who was crucified on a cross. What we have is the, is the gospel of grace is the only gospel that is able to transform. It's the only one that comes from Jesus Christ, and it's the only one that glorifies God. Look, as, as a body of believers here, we have to remember that we are all still sinful and that we need one another to encourage each other. Like when we gather on Sundays, this is a time for us to encourage one another, to call each other throughout the week because we still have a tendency to fall back towards false gospels. We're going to see in a couple of weeks where Peter, one of the apostles, went towards a false gospel. If Peter went towards a false gospel, if Barnabas was led astray by a false gospel, if the Galatian church that was preached to by Paul can be led astray by a false gospel, we must not be arrogant and think that we will not be led astray either. So the solution is, is to draw near to God in his gospel. And that we would challenge one another more and more. The, the women's ministry that's coming up, the seasonal blessings, what a great blessing of older women discipling younger women for the purpose of strengthening us in the faith of the gospel that we will not depart from it. As we have more small groups that develop here in our Wednesday night Bible studies and our women's and men's Bible study that meet on Tuesday, the purpose is that we would fall more in love with the truth of the gospel because regularly we are bombarded with false gospels, and we need to know that. Your children are, your wives are, your husbands are, your neighbors are, your co-workers are. And we're called to share the gospel with them. Because what's at stake here, if we go back to verses 8 and 9, we see 
It's heaven and hell. Paul says, if you preach a false gospel, you're accursed. Well, if the teachers are cursed, those who believe it will also be accursed. So Paul is saying, as a father to his son, you must believe the gospel of grace. And as believers here in this church, we must come alongside one another passionately, daily, weekly, encouraging each other in the gospel of grace. Husbands, encourage your wives. Wives, encourage your husbands. Encourage your families. If you're here and you're single, encourage one another here. Be encouraged as we gather here. We come to exhort one another in the gospel of Christ. For the gospel alone has the power to save. So I'm going to pray, and Andrew's going to come up, and we're going to do a couple questions real quick. Father, we, we come to you now, and Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the gospel alone has the power to save. We thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. We thank you that it is not by works, for if it is by works, we have no hope. But we thank you that by grace you sent your son Jesus to die, that by grace we could be forgiven and adopted into your family. God, may we know this gospel today. God, if there's anyone in here who does not know it, I pray that they would confess that you are Lord and Savior today and they would experience your grace and the joy of knowing that you have forgiven them and they have eternal life in you. Father, we praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen. So on this last Sunday, um, we decided to, instead of doing Q&A um, on the normal texting way, we thought... Andrew wrote down some questions, and so we're just going to briefly talk about them, and then we're going to come into communion, but the whole purpose is to hopefully break down anything and, and to make it even more applicable, and so hopefully this helps. Uh, we welcome your feedback, so you can let us know whatever you think about this, so what's your first question? Hello? 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 Oh, there it is. All right. Um... So, I thought you said something really good. You said, um, they have a distorted view of grace because they have an elevated view of self. Um, I was wondering if you could explain that. Why is, how are they elevating themselves? And Yeah. Um, if we go back, to, go back to the garden, Adam and Eve, they're created to worship God. Um, but we see when sin comes, notice what Eve does in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that she looks at the fruit, that she begins to lust after the fruit, that the fruit becomes appealing to her, it becomes a delight in her eyes, and she's beginning to delight in what God has called them not to do. And it's at that moment, she's seeking her glory apart from God's glory, which means we want what God has told us not to do. We think that we can make ourselves happy on our terms versus God's terms. And because we come from Adam and Eve, that's what all of us do. That's why we have the tendency, even as Christians, to, to fall back into, maybe if I read my Bible more, maybe if I pray more, maybe if I do these things more, I can earn my way to heaven. We have this, um, we have this desire and ability to think that we can earn our way or we can pursue a means of salvation by our own efforts apart from God's grace. And that's a temptation uh, that we all face. And so that's kind of what I, I mean by that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so somebody actually handed me this, and okay. I thought it was really good. They were asking about um, faith alone and grace alone, how we went through the solas before. And I think clearly we can see how four of the solas are obviously God's work. But then yeah. there's this faith alone, and sometimes we like, well, faith, that's what we do. And so maybe you could explain real quick how faith is grace, or how does that work? Um. Yeah, real quick. Real quick. Ten seconds, go. <laughs> um, well, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of your own selves is the gift of God. Paul in Ephesians talks about faith as being a part of that gift. In Ephesians 2, it says that we're dead to Christ. And, and that, that's a good picture of Paul. He's dead to Christ. He's running away from Christ as fast as he can, literally on a horse, trying to arrest Christians. And... He has no desire to have faith in God, but when grace comes upon him and awakens him, 
And then he actually sees Jesus with his new eyes that grace has given him. He now sees him as beautiful, and he now wants to preach him even to the Gentiles, to those people who he used to hate. And so I think that's a picture of how faith is, is grace. Um, grace awakens us and gives us the faith to actually have in God. And so that's how faith is part of grace. Yeah, I think you actually explained it really well in your sermon too because you were talking about how the gospel of grace transforms us. Yes. And so that transformation, that's us living out the faith. And so that's just really cool. Which is good because then you don't have to, you're not trying to convince someone to believe hard enough. What you're trying to do is just show them Jesus knowing that as they see Jesus, they'll receive that grace and that faith will be there to believe. Cool. So, are you ready for the next one? Yes. All right. Maybe. <laughs> In the text that we read, um, Paul is given his gospel directly by Jesus. Um, how is that important for regular people and not pastors and theologians? Like, why do they need to know that? So, why is it important that we have uh, Galatians 1? Because uh, in Galatians 1, Paul in many ways, I mean, other than his testimony, you're like, okay, why do I need to know he went to Syria and Cilicia? Why do I need to know he went to Damascus? Like, why do I need to know these things, right? Like, even as you go into the first part of Galatians 2, he's like, I went to Jerusalem, I brought Titus with me, he wasn't forced to be circumcised, and it's just kind of like this historical narrative, and you're like, where are we? Why are we reading this? Do you ever feel like that? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. Um, Paul is defending the gospel in the first century. That's how he's being attacked. We're also being attacked today, and we're called to know the gospel. Um, Paul's showing us how to defend the gospel. Why is it that Paul says, my gospel is real? If you're asked today, how do you know Paul's gospel is real? We'd come back to Paul's arguments himself. Uh, Paul's showing us that as Christians, we have to be prepared to defend the gospel. Um, I, I think there's a... There's a, a thought or a movement out there, and, and you can validate this without, raise your hands if you want, but you don't have to. Um, I think a lot of Christians don't think they really need to study, don't think they need to have kind of their own Christian libraries. I think every Christian needs to have their own library. Every Christian needs to be studying the Word because we're called to defend the Word. We're called to know the Word. The world's going to ask us what we believe. We need to know why, and the only reason we're going to know why is if we've actually studied the Word. And, and I want to encourage you, as you're being pressed by the world on why you believe what you believe, that's time for us to press back. But if you don't know the gospel, you're, going to be, you're not going to know how to really press back. And it's okay if you're ever asked questions and you don't know to simply say, you know, I'm not sure about that. Let me come back to the word and I'll come back to you in a week or in a day. But as Christians, we're called to know the gospel. Paul's giving us a great example, all in chapters 1 and 2, that as believers, we need to know the gospel because we're going to be asked to defend it. And, and we need to be prepared to do that. So I want to encourage you, if you don't have a library Every Christian should have a library of 10 to 20 to 30 books minimum um, of good, solid books. And I can give you a recommendation of easy 30 books of books that will help you grow in your understanding uh, of being able to defend the faith. Uh, and so I think that's why it's important. And it's why Paul's doing it for us and why we need to know how to defend it also. Yeah. And so Paul's gospel that he wrote down is the gospel we believe. So, yeah, yeah if it came from Jesus, ours came from Jesus, too. Um, that's awesome. Okay. And then, oh, yeah, so the gospel of grace transforms. And I think Rich and you actually talked both about how the gospel causes us to love people in the church and how, um, how that changes us. Right. But how does it affect us loving people outside of the church? Like, um, or people who maybe come to church but are unbelievers, such as like unbelieving family members, unbelieving spouses, unbelieving coworkers and friends and whatnot. Yeah, so how does the gospel, um, if I hear maybe, how does the gospel affect the, the believer who has an unbelieving spouse? Yeah. And, and what do they do at that moment? Why is it good news that it's by grace? Um, if you have an unbelieving spouse, then their salvation is not dependent on, on how well you give the gospel presentation to them. If you have an unbelieving spouse, uh, the gospel is not dependent 
on, on how well you read the Bible in front of them, on how well you say your prayers before them. Um, in fact, if you're a woman, amazingly, like 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about um, how it's in our submission that we win our husbands over, and that it's, they're actually just being a good example to them. Um, what we learn is that because it's grace, God is the one who does all the work. We're called to trust in God, which removes all of the pressure from you to save your spouse, to save your unbelieving uh, child, to maybe save your unbelieving coworker. It's not your responsibility to do the saving. Your responsibility is simply be faithful, to share the gospel, to love them as Christ does, to pray for them, to give the gospel the best that you can as you're able to. But trust that God will be the one that saves. And I think that's the power behind the gospel of grace. It removes all the pressure from you. And when you do a bad job or when you do uh, yell at your spouse and you're like, oh man, I've blown it. Now you won't ever want to believe in Jesus. It saves you from kicking yourself because it's not based upon your effort, but it's based upon God's grace that saves. And so I, I think we need to keep reminding ourselves it's grace that saves us. It's grace that will save our loved ones. Um, and we're just simply called to be faithful in that. So That's awesome. Yeah. It, it does give us like a peace, right? Because it's God who does it. It's yeah. all by grace. Um, I know when I was working at a toy store, like <laughs> they, like the grace and peace that comes with that, that you're able to just have confidence that it's God who saves rather than you that has to go out and do this and you have to convince them of it. Rather, it's you share the gospel and you just have this joy in you of what God has done. And everyone else is, it, like, if you fail, it's okay. It's God's work in them. As the word goes out, he's the one who saves, not you. Yeah, so, very much. Yeah. Cool. That's all I have. Okay. Uh, well, thanks. I'm going to ask uh, the men to come.